Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio, your climate change podcast. In this show, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peterson Toscano. Welcome to episode 89 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, October 27th, 2023. Last month, you met Horace and Lily, two new CCR team members. Now you get to meet Karina. Hi, everybody. I'm Karina Taylor, and I am so happy to join CCR as an intern. I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. I'm half Cuban and half Ecuadorian, and Miami is a blend of different cultures. I've seen the impacts of climate change firsthand. Alongside everyone else in Miami, I have seen the floods. I experienced the hurricanes. I've lived with extreme heat. It pains me to see such a diverse and beautiful city struggle with a worsening climate. When I stroll through Miami, I see Latin bakeries on every corner filled with delicious treats. I hear conversations sprinkled with Spanish phrases. I smell Cuban coffee and the salty ocean air. I feel the warm sand under my feet. I hear waves crashing at the beach. I cannot let climate change destroy all that. I had to do something. So in 2021, I became a CCL volunteer and am now the liaison of my district. That means I make our lobbying appointments with our congressional office. Through advocacy, I found a community of resilient and hardworking people fighting for my city. I got to hear their stories as people from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences. I feel grateful for that because it taught me that everybody has valuable skills and perspectives. Everyone has a story worth telling. Because of that experience, I'm an aspiring science communicator. I'm currently finishing up a master's degree in global strategic communications and a certificate in science communication. I graduate in December. I can't wait to walk off that stage with my degree in my hand. As Citizens Climate Radio, I want to share the stories of our movement creatively and respectfully. I hope that I can show our audience that we can overcome climate change. You are an important and crucial part of the solution. Although I love advocacy, I cannot do it 24-7. I believe we all need to take breaks from the work. When I'm not advocating, I love spending time by the beach. I also have three dogs, Lila, Angie, and Noir. They're actually two sisters and their mother. I love taking them on adventures around the city. I'm pretty obsessed with my dogs, so most of my free time goes to making them happy. Para mí es un placer estar con ustedes en los próximos episodios y compartir juntos nuestras experiencias. Gracias. Welcome aboard, Karina. Later this year, Karina and I will produce a limited special series in Spanish, Voces del Cambio, Explorando el Clima en Latinoamérica, Voices of Change Exploring Climate Change in Latin America. As a climate advocate, you want to stay informed, up-to-date, and equipped in the work you do. On today's show, the team and I are going to help you do just that. We will tell you about some of the newest and best books and podcasts related to climate advocacy. Dr. Krista Heiser shares her ultimate cli-fi reading list. Whether you read these novels for yourself or give them as gifts, 
These climate fiction books deepen our understanding and empathy. More importantly, they provide us with visions of a world filled with solutions. Lily Russian shares two new podcasts by people passionate about addressing climate change. She speaks to the mastermind behind The Change, a podcast about women, technology, and the Anthropocene. And she talks to one of the hosts of a new show produced by young conservatives for young conservatives. Spoiler alert, one of them once totally denied the reality of climate change. Karina Taley chats with journalist Rosanna Shaw about her new book, California Against the Sea. Rosanna, an LA Times reporter, is a master storyteller. She reminds us of the importance of building trust as we communicate with others about climate change. Horace Moe speaks to the author of a new book that asks the all-important questions. What about the parents and the grandparents? What can the boomer generation do to address climate change in a meaningful way? The book is full of practical and significant ways the older generation can make an impact. It may just be the perfect gift for your grandparents. Karina and Horace will tell you about the new book, that goes behind the scenes and brings you up close to the 21 youth plaintiffs who sued the government over climate change. Elizabeth Rush shares inspiring stories from the book. She also talks about the lessons she learned from shadowing these young people. And as always, we have good news stories. Lila Powell shares her experience at Clean the Bay Day, it's the largest and longest-running litter cleanup day in the U.S. Commonwealth of Virginia. Usually, our show is 30 minutes long, but we have so many resources for you today, and our guests have vital information and insights to share with you. So we're going to go over, no doubt. And don't worry, if you don't remember every book and podcast, we have all the details and links, plus a full transcript, in our show notes. Just visit cclusa.org radio. We will be sure to tell you that web address several more times this episode. Let's start with three nonfiction books that were just released this month. We begin with Karina Taylor. Hey, Karina, and welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. What have you got for us? Thank you, Peterson. I was fortunate enough to read an advanced copy of a new book that has helped me better understand the many issues facing residents, animals, leaders, and built structures along coasts. I may be from Florida, but Rosanna Shah's new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastlines, tells stories that hit close to home. Rosanna is an environmental reporter for the LA Times who specializes in the ocean and coasts. She was also a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2020 for explanatory journalism. She has mastered storytelling. In this book, she uses her skills to tackle one of California's most daunting problems, sea level rise. Rosanna introduces the reader to dozens of people all along the California coastline. She told the stories of people experiencing sea level rise in ways that hit my head, heart, and gut. This is not a dry book with nonstop facts and figures. Instead, Rosanna brings together a community of vibrant stories and memorable people. 
through these human connections, Rosanna explores issues like private ownership along the coast, public accessibility to nature, and the need to build resilient communities and infrastructure. Even if you're not a Californian, in fact, even if you're in the middle of the Midwest, far from the ocean, you will likely be drawn in by the stories Rosanna tells. Rosanna took a moment from her book tour and reporting for the LA Times to meet with us. She tells us about the big themes that emerge in the book. She also shares expert tips for the work we do as climate advocates, connecting with the public and public officials. Oh, and she talks about hope. How much hope should we include in our stories? Can sharing too much hope make people complacent? And is there some other feeling we need to stir up that will have a much bigger impact? I actually grew up in Massachusetts. I live in Los Angeles today. It's really amazing that I cover the coast for the LA Times now because I didn't grow up going to the beach that often. And I think that's something that you'll see in the book in terms of themes of access and who actually has the privilege of accessing the coast, enjoying the coast and growing up with this like love for the ocean. Because for me, the love for the ocean was truly found and it discovered and I really discovered it pretty late in life. The book is titled California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. I mean, it's a book about sea level rise in California, but what I tell folks is it's about so much more than that because the, our relationship to the ocean and how we have built our coastline and how we want to maintain our coastline going into the future ends up being a story that really unpacks our land use history, which is intimately connected to our social history and also our environmental history. I really wanted to write a book that was entirely about California, where we can go across this 1,200 mile shoreline and look at so many different communities and topographies and geographies and really just think about all the nuances of this conversation, this issue that, you know, tends to get oversimplified. And I often read books about climate change where California is just one chapter in a broader book about an issue. And yeah, there's just a really complex story to be told through just the communities in California in a way that I think will resonate with any coastal community in this country and across the world. When I first submitted my manuscript to my book editor and she read just the entirety of what I was trying to write, she said, wow, this feels like such an incredible blend of old school journalism, radical listening, and deep hanging out. If you go into an interview or you reach out to someone with kind of a preconceived notion or judgment of what they're going to say or how they're going to fit into the story, you're not, your first conversation isn't just to listen and to ask questions on, why are you afraid to talk to me? What are you nervous about? What are you worried about? I, I think there are different ways to open a conversation. And this, and this is also with people that you might not agree with. This is with people who might not be used to sharing their stories to someone. Because again, I think also it's so important to be aware of what it means to parachute into a community, extract their stories and information, and take it somewhere where they don't know what you're going to do with that information. So really kind of putting yourself in the other person's, not just shoes, but their vulnerability, proactively attending to that. So, you know, whether it is an underserved community that has been overlooked and forgotten and, you know, never been treated with respect, like, you know, understanding what it feels like, what it feels like to have a reporter come into your community the first time to ask these questions. And even if my intentions are well-meaning, you need to really build trust first. So that first interview, you know, you have to be aware that that's not your first and only interview. You have to come back. There is so much power 
in stopping by and then coming back a second, a third, a fourth time to a community. And by like the fifth time you're talking to someone, that's when the magic happens. Empathy and radical listening, I think truly is the way to begin these conversations and truly, truly, truly believing that every single person on every side of the issue has a voice and a purpose in this story. So the question I get all the time, kind of in like climate journalism spaces, when I'm speaking in, you know, environmental communication classes at universities, is the how much hope do you leave the reader with in the story? I, I've started to call it the hope question in my head. And, and it's a valid question because if you put too much hope into a story, people get complacent. They, they don't feel the urgency. And it's like, you know, you grip them with a story, you introduce them to an issue, but then they don't feel like they put down the story and they have to act now. So too much hope kind of leads to the sense of complacency. Not enough hope also leads to a sense of fatalism and inaction. So if you don't sprinkle in enough hope in a story, that also is not productive. I realize that hope is not the emotion that I should be indexing on. It's actually the feeling of responsibility. How do I write stories that leave the reader with a feeling of responsibility and duty to act? Like, I almost don't care how much hope or despair you have, but we should all feel responsible to do something after we put the story down, after we put the book down. This responsibility to act, to truly acknowledge that change is coming, change has been happening, and we need to change with it, and we need to truly reconsider the systems that got us here in the first place and that some of these changes will be difficult. Some of these changes will call for sacrifice. But in order to feel responsible and to feel a duty to act on these needs takes courage. And so courage and responsibility are truly the two emotions that I feel like are my guiding beacons in the way I write these stories. And so oftentimes, I tell folks, you know, when you're writing a story, you have to think about at the end, what do you want the reader to think, but also what do you want the reader to feel? And so those two questions, I think, are really great grounding questions to ask yourself as a communicator in terms of how you're delivering the message. That was Rosanna Shaw. She wrote the book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastlines. It is available wherever you get books. I encourage you to read Rosanna's reporting in the Los Angeles Times at latimes.com. You can also follow her on Twitter and Instagram. I put links in our show notes for you. Just go to cclusa.org slash radio. Now I welcome my CCR team member, Horace Mo. Thanks, Karina. Hi, I'm Horace. Karina and I recently spoke with Elizabeth Rush. She's the author of several books, including You Call This Democracy? It was a finalist for the Yalsa Award for Excellence in Nonfiction for Young Adults. Elizabeth has published nearly two dozen acclaimed books for children and young adults. Some of her titles include The Next Wave, The Quest to Harness the Power of the Oceans, Impact, Asteroids and the Science of Saving the World, and Muddy Max, The Mystery of Marsh Creek. This is the first of her action-packed middle-grade graphic novel series. Besides all the phenomenal work she has already accomplished, Karina and I interviewed Elizabeth about her recent publication, 
the 21, the true story of the youth who sued the U.S. government over climate change. In it, Elizabeth dives into the ongoing landmark federal climate change lawsuit, Juliana versus United States of America. She introduces us to the 21 young people who came from different states to sue the U.S. government. The 21 has accused the federal government of denying them their constitutional right to life and liberty by not acting to address the causes of climate change. The case was filed in 2015 by Our Children's Trust on behalf of the 21 plaintiffs. Their goal is to secure children's legal rights to safe climate. In her book, The 21, Elizabeth has documented eight years of the ongoing case of Juliana versus United States of America. So far, this lawsuit has passed through three presidential administrations. Elizabeth Rush's writing is insightful and well documented, as she tracked the case and spent time with the young people who refused to take no for an answer. Karina and I were amazed by the inspiring work of the 21 plaintiffs and their resiliency. Not only should more people pay attention to the case, we believe anyone reading Elizabeth's book will be inspired to do great things. A lot of these young people、um, joined the case as a way to do something about the horrible things that were happening in their life, but they, you know, they're they're starting from a place of trauma. I think that the young people get a lot of strength from each other, strength and inspiration from each other. So there's Levi, whose childhood home in Florida is going to be underwater in his lifetime from sea level rise. He's had to evacuate from his home twice. Um, Jade and her siblings were stranded and sickened by rising waters from a freak flood、um, in Louisiana. Jamie and her mom were driven off their native land by severe drought in Arizona. The heart of the case is that the U.S. Constitution gives us the right to life, liberty, and property. And basically, they're arguing that you can't have life, liberty, and property when you can't breathe from wildfire smoke. When you're endangered by massive wildfires, hurricanes, floods, and drought, the other thing that they're arguing is that they're not saying that the government should do more about climate change, which they should do. They're actually saying that the government is responsible and liable for this fossil fuel energy system that we've created. If the court declares that they have a constitutional right to a stable climate, and that the federal government has been、um, their actions have been unconstitutional for basically the past fifty years, then the federal government has to stop. They have to stop permitting drilling on federal public lands, permitting imports and exports, permitting pipelines, and permitting subsidizing fossil fuels. And that is huge. More than twenty-five percent of U.S. emissions come. From fossil fuels that come from federal public lands, so simply getting the federal government out of the business of supporting the fossil fuel energy system could be the biggest step forward in climate change that we have ever seen. And a number of them also talked about how they have learned and grown by watching. Each other. So、uh, one of them, Sahara, who I think was about eleven when she joined the case, was really shy. And by watching the other young plaintiffs step forward and do media interviews and take some rather challenging questions from the media and just 
brush it off and go on that she gained a lot of strength from that. And a few years into the case actually went to her lawyers and said, I know I told you I don't want to do many media interviews, but, but I do, I feel passionately about this and I see how the other uh, young people have, have dealt with it and I'm going to do it too. And, and she's turned into quite a, um, a powerful spokesperson for the case and for climate change. So it's really the dynamics of these young people working together that has empowered them to see this case through eight years of roller coasters from, you know, dramatic hearings and heartbreaking rulings and groundbreaking rulings um, from being told the case was dismissed to being back on track to trial. I have found learning about this case and tracking this case to be both maddening and inspiring. Um, I guess I'll start with maddening first. <laughs> um, so the case was filed in 2015. It was originally filed against the Obama administration. Um, it has been passed on to the Trump administration and is now um, with the Biden administration. And all three administrations have actively opposed the case. But they didn't have to do that. They don't have to oppose the case. Any one of those administrations could say, yes, young people do have a constitutional right to a stable climate. And yes, government should get out of the business of supporting um, fossil fuels through permitting and subsidies and um, all the ways that the federal government supports fossil fuel. Watching the hearings and watching the government lawyers say that the kids have no right to go to trial, that um, basically that the, that the youth don't deserve a trial, that it's up to the legislature and the executive to decide what to do about climate change is infuriating. And what is amazing to me is that more people don't know about this case and don't realize that these kids have put together this compelling case, that the lawyers put together this compelling case, that they've been winning rulings. They've gone much further than anybody ever expected them to go. They've been up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals several times and have won. They've been up to the U.S. Supreme Court several times and they have won. They have won their most recent ruling and they're on their way to trial. And if they win, it could change everything. I mean, kids, they can't vote. They have no voice in the legislative branch and in the executive branch. Constitutional rights are at stake. So they really need the courts to tell the federal government that their actions are unconstitutional. And it, it, it's really infuriating to hear administration after administration stand up and say that the courts don't have a role, that the kids don't have any say in this dangerous climate crisis that is so affecting their lives. I mean, I think the, the number one thing that needs to happen is that the administrations need to get out of the way of these young people. They need to, to take these cases seriously and they need to settle them. I feel like we adults need kids to tell us the obvious. And the obvious is that all citizens do have a constitutional right to a stable climate. There is no life, no liberty, and no property without a stable climate. And their government, our government, should not be allowed to continue to contribute to this problem.
That was Elizabeth Rush talking about her new book, The Twenty One: The True Story of the Youth Who Sued the U.S. Government Over Climate Change. It is available wherever books are sold. You can keep up with the Twenty One and their case at ourchildrenstrust.org. You can also read Elizabeth's other works at elizabethrush.com. Rush is spelled R-U-S-C-H. I also put links in the show notes for you over at cclusa.org/radio. Coming up, writer Lawrence McDonald asks, "Am I too old to save the planet?" He has strong words for fellow boomers and practical steps they can take to address climate change. Spoiler alert: He is a big fan of Citizens Climate Lobby. Plus, Dr. Krista Heiser with Climate Fiction, Lily Russian with two new podcasts, and much more. Stay tuned. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we want you to be effective in the climate work you do. So we provide training, local group meetings, and many resources. They're all designed to help you build the confidence and skills needed to pursue climate solutions. We also offer regional and national conferences. As of this recording date, the next big conference will be held online. I invite you to attend Grassroots Rising: Leveling Up in the Climate Fight. This is our fall virtual conference. It will be held online November fourth and fifth, twenty twenty-three. Speakers include Van Jones, a CNN commentator, author, and social entrepreneur, and Dr. Danny Richter, founder of Richter Capital Hill Strategies. Danny is also one of the original people who started our organization. For more information and to register, visit cclusa.org/fallconference. That's cclusa.org/fallconference. I will be there, and I hope to see you too. Hi, it's Horace again. Which generation is most responsible for causing climate change? How can different generations unite together to take on climate change? You will find answers in my conversation with Lawrence McDonald, a former foreign correspondent and communication professional. Lawrence spent two decades serving as the vice president of communications at two global think tanks, the World Resource Institute and the Center for Global Development. He has years of experience addressing climate change. Now he is determined to mobilize other boomers who were born between 1946 and 1964. Though he is retired, he just published his first book. Am I too old to save the planet? A Boomer's Guide to Climate Action. It is a self-help guidebook for older Americans who are concerned or alarmed by the climate crisis. In the book. Lawrence explains how America's most promising generation allowed climate change to become a planetary emergency. More importantly, he gives them guidance of what they can do about it. He offers efficient actions every boomer could take to redress their mistake. To Lawrence, his book is not about him and what he has achieved in his life. It is about the message of bringing more people into the struggle for a livable planet. In my conversation with Lawrence and reading his book, I admire his 
undeniable obligation for climate action. He shares passionately about why it is important for him and other boomers to join the front line of fighting climate change. This book is specifically intended for boomers, people who still have the most power and influence in current U.S. society. Even so, Lawrence hopes younger people like me will use his book to help us connect with older Americans about climate change. Now, let's hear from Lawrence McDonald. As he shares his inspiration to write his book and his mission to get every boomer on board. Horace, thank you for inviting me on the show. I'm a big fan of CCL and、uh, Peterson Toscano,、uh, the host of this show in particular. Pleased to meet you. I have felt for a long time. That my generation, the Boomers, those of us born from 1946 to 1963, are uniquely responsible for climate change, and that that responsibility should drive us to connect with our youthful ideals and to become part of the solution. We held power during the period when climate change went from a manageable problem to a planetary emergency. We elected the politicians. We ran all the universities. We ran all the banks. We ran all the institutions. And I'm a middle boomer. I'm born in 1954. I remember the actions to stop the war in Vietnam. I remember the first Earth Day.、Uh, I was on the periphery of both the feminist movement and the gay rights movement. Th- those were my heroes. But somehow, when we came of age. We dropped the ball, and we dropped the ball because we got distracted and selfish. And our slogans "Be here now" and "Don't trust anyone over 30" weren't very helpful. But also, we were lied to by the fossil fuel companies. And so we failed to take action, and now it's become a catastrophe. And that's why I think that we have a unique responsibility to act. I think it's inappropriate for old people like me to be giving advice to young generations, given that we dropped the ball. I think our role should be to be giving support, financial support, showing up for people.、Um, I don't know that we ought to be giving advice, but I will tell you how I think my book can be useful to young people, and that is my book, "Am I Too Old to Save the Planet: A Boomer's Guide to Climate Action," is specifically for older people. The millions of us who are worried about climate change and wondering what to do, and Horace, I bet that a lot of your listeners, young people like you who are in university or recently graduated and in the workforce, they have people they love who aren't doing enough. Their parents, their grandparents, and they don't really want to bring it up because it's kind of accusatory. It's like you go home for Thanksgiving and say, "Hey, mom and dad," or "Hey, grand grandpa and grandma," did you? Really screw up, and you left me a non-livable planet. Can we please talk about that? That's not an easy conversation to have. But what you can do is order my book. I prefer you get it from a small independent bookstore. You can ask them for it; they'll get it for you. You can also order it from Amazon. Take it home for Thanksgiving. Give it as a present, and say, "You know that I've been thinking about climate change. I'm sure you're thinking about it too. We don't have many opportunities to discuss it. Would you please do me a favor?" Between now and the end of the year holidays, when I'm coming back, read this book. I'm eager to hear what you think about it. And then wait a few weeks, and then send them a text and say, "Hey, Ma, did you open the book yet?" 
hey, grandma, what do you think? Have you read chapter one? Remind them so that you don't blindside them when you come back for the end of the year, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever holiday you're celebrating, you come back, they will have read it because they know you're going to ask them about it. Then you can have a conversation. Even now, the 70 million boomers are the most powerful generation in the country. We determine the election outcomes. We control 70% of the country's wealth. And we know it's a big problem. The number of us who are acting, there's more all the time, but it's probably in the tens of thousands. It needs to be in the tens of millions. And that's how your listeners can help make that happen. Recruit their parents and their grandparents to become part of this movement to save the planet. In the 90s, there was a lot of interest in individual action. And I have in my book a chapter called Every Little Bit Helps, right? And I recommend things like eating a plant-based diet, um, installing rooftop solar, driving less and walking and biking more. Those are good things to do. But we've reached a point where individual action is going to be too little too late. And so we really need collective action to have rapid policy change. And that's one of the reasons that I am actually a big admirer of Citizens Climate Lobby. The idea of carbon fee and dividend, I think, is a very powerful driver uh, for action. And it's going to need a bipartisan consensus. And one of the wonderful things about CCL is the way you have people all over the country, including people in deep red states, who are willing to engage with Republican politicians and persuade them. And so we need groups all across the spectrum, from groups like Citizens Climate Lobby that are willing to work behind the scenes quietly with conservatives, to groups like Climate Defiance who are in people's face saying, why did you sign off on this project? But I want to cite here Catherine Hayhoe. She's an, as you probably know, both an evangelical Christian and a climate scientist. Catherine Hayhoe writes and has a great YouTube video about this to say that everybody has the values to care about climate change. Everybody loves somebody. Everybody has a part of the world or a place that they care about. Everybody, whether they have children or not, have young people that they care about. And so the question is finding how to connect the dots between the things they care about and climate change. And since climate change is everywhere all the time, it's not that hard to connect the dots. Especially if you're having a conversation with somebody that you're in a deep relationship with. I have a section in my book called What's In It For Me. My generation was called the me generation. It's all about what's in it for me. What's in it for you? is you will make new friends and you'll bring new meaning to your life and you'll have fun. That was Lawrence McDonald, author of the book Am I Too Old to Save the Planet? A Boomer's Guide to Climate Action. Please tell the older people in your life about it. If you want to know more about Lawrence, please visit climateboomer.org. That's climateboomer.org. He tweets over on the social media platform, which is now called X at Climate Boomer. Ray has published essays on the long-form platform called Medium at Climate Boomer. And I hope this book will help you open up conversations with important people in your life. Next, I pass the mic to Peterson. 
Thank you so much, Horace and Karina, for telling us about those three books. We have all of the details about the books, the authors, and more in our show notes. Just visit cclusa.org slash radio. And I actually have one more nonfiction book to tell you about. It is by an author who also has the name Elizabeth Rush, but it's spelled R-U-S-H. I interviewed this Elizabeth Rush back in 2018 for episode 26, Deep Water. We spoke about her book, Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore. She wove in narratives from coastal residents around the USA, along with her own research and personal reflections about sea level rise. It is beautifully written in a way that humanized global warming for me. This fall, Elizabeth Rush has released a new book, The Quickening, Creation and Community at the End of the World. In 2019, 57 scientists and crew embarked on the ship, the Nathaniel B. Palmer. They were there to explore Thwaites Glacier. This is a mysterious and potentially catastrophic site for global sea level rise. Elizabeth Rush's new book, The Quickening, chronicles their journey. She mixes sublime moments like seeing icebergs up close with everyday activities like ping pong and lab work. It also delves into the personal question of bringing a child into a changing world. This Antarctica story focuses on imagining a better future, understanding the continent's history, and highlighting the roles of women and people of color in expeditions. In an upcoming episode, Elizabeth will tell us more about the book and will give us a reading. But for now, check it out for yourself. The book is The Quickening, Creation and Community at the End of the World by Elizabeth Rush. It is published by Milkweed Press and available wherever you get books. Visit elizabethrush.net to see video of eerily beautiful landscapes of Antarctica and to learn more about the book. That's elizabethrush.net. Rush is spelled R-U-S-H. I put links in our show notes. Visit cclusa.org slash radio. Dr. Krista Heiser has been a regular guest and contributor to Citizens Climate Radio. 
She helps educators find creative ways to incorporate climate change into the curriculum. She does this work in several ways. Currently, she is the senior lead and advisor for advancing sustainability education over at the Global Council for Science and the Environment. She's also a professor of composition and rhetoric. But perhaps one of her most exciting endeavors is a successful online group she started. It's called the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club. Cli-Fi was this term for works of fiction that dealt with climate reality. Sci-Fi is silver bullet solutions, world building on other planets or in fantasy worlds. Cli-Fi stays in this world with the problems we've got and the solutions and approaches that we do have to work with. So Cli-Fi has then evolved into climate-themed literary fiction. The Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club is a professional development course for the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education. They wanted to do something new for professional development, and I said, hey, let's have a book club and talk about climate fiction. We read books with sustainability professionals at colleges and universities. Imagine, we're reading a book like Ministry for the Future. We read this book every year in the book club. It's the first book. It's our cornerstone book, Ministry for the Future. And if you've read this book, you know that it touches on every academic discipline. It's a multidisciplinary approach to climate crisis, and it's the only book I've ever read in which the Keeling curve actually begins to come down. You know, we actually take carbon out of the atmosphere. And in the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club, you're reading this book with economists, biologists, psychologists, a few English professors like me, counselors, librarians. And what we're really talking about is how can we take this climate-themed literature and what can we do with it to create a new conversation about climate change? We read four books every fall, beginning with Ministry for the Future. The second book we're reading this year is Canticle for Leibovitz. This is a novel about existential threat and nuclear annihilation. I wrote a blog post recently about Canticle and talked about it in relationship to my own adolescence as a Gen Xer during the Cold War and these existential threat that we felt at that time as we crouched under our desks for nuclear bomb drills. And I'm connecting this to the existential threat that adolescents feel today around climate crisis. So Canticle, that was our second book. The third book we're reading this year is called Night in the World. And you probably haven't heard of this book, but I think it's the best climate novel that I've read in the past few years is by Toronto-based writer Sharon English. And we're reading this book as an example of place-based writing and literature that transforms our relationship with the natural world. And then our last book club meeting will be an invitation for 
all of the participants to bring their favorite stories about water. So these might be short stories. We're going to consider a poem called Water is Life by Craig Santos Perez. We're going to read some short stories about water. I am offering three novels related to water. One is called Man with the Compound Eyes, and this deals with sea level rise. One is Memory of Water by Emi Itaranha. This is a young adult novel that I just think is beautiful. That was Dr. Krista Heiser. She leads the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club. To learn more about the club and to read Dr. Heiser's regular post about climate change fiction, visit her page on Medium. It is called Teaching Climate Change. There you will also find links to the Ultimate Cli-Fi Book Club. And if you want to find more climate fiction, the New York Public Library has a list of some of the best climate fiction novels out there. They classify them as compelling climate fiction to read before it becomes nonfiction. In our show notes, I have a link to this resource along with links to Dr. Heiser and her work. You will also find links to other climate fiction lists. Some of these books may be the perfect gift for a loved one who is climate curious and a lover of good stories. Visit cclusa.org radio to see our show notes and a full transcript of today's show. We've been talking about books, but what about podcasts? CCR team member Lily Russian is here to tell us about two new podcasts you may have not yet heard about. One is focused on women working in climate tech. The other is produced by young conservatives concerned about climate change. They want to reach fellow young conservatives. Hey, Lily, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Peterson. Green Tea Party Radio is a podcast that discusses conservative solutions to environmental problems. It is a thought-provoking podcast hosted by three young conservatives. Katie, Zach, and Hannah offer fresh perspectives on climate change as they offer up conservative-friendly solutions. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, this podcast fosters productive discussions around this critical global issue. I spoke with Katie Zakreski, one of the hosts of Green Tea Party Radio. In our conversation, we talked about her journey, which led her to an interest in environmental issues. Growing up conservative in Arkansas, and as she said, a climate change denier, Katie is now an excellent spokesperson for climate solutions. Katie has been actively involved with Citizens Climate Lobby's Conservative Caucus. In our conversation, we explore the inception of Green Tea Party Radio and the motivations that fueled its creation. Additionally, Katie shares her personal perspective on climate change. For Katie Sikreski, climate change is a pro-life issue. Growing up a conservative, always cared about nature in the general sense of like, you know, you care about animals around you, you hunt, you fish. That, that for me was like being an environmentalist and that's where it stopped. I was a lot further right then than I am now. Now I'm more center right, moderate right. Back then, I was a climate denier. I did not believe in climate change. I thought that it was just a big government hoax. And then my first class in college, one of my first classes was called Science and Society. My professor, all semester, she was uh, pretty much told the class here, just read, read what I give you, um, give it a chance, even if you're not sure how you feel about it, and just, you know, we'll, we'll go through it as we get there. 
by the end of the semester, I was like, okay, every piece of data and report and book and everything that I've read, I've got enough common sense to know that it's all pointing in this one direction. And I had even tried to ask people who were pretty well-known climate deniers in my community, hey, can you help me like refute this in a paper? And they did not have explanations for any of the climate change science that I was showing them. And so by the end of that semester, I was like, okay, climate change is real, but I don't want to compromise my conservative values to do something about climate change. The next few years were really spent trying to navigate a, an environmentalist identity and somebody who's climate conscious through the lens of conservatism. It's really hard finding content out there for environmental conservatives, in particular, young environmental conservatives. So 18 to 25-ish within that age range, you know, high school, college, young professional. So I had known Hannah and Zach from working at Citizens Climate Lobby. We had all known each other. Uh, um, Hannah was a conservative fellow. We would bump into each other at conferences. We were in a lot of the same action teams together. And I remember we were all at the conservative conference back in March of 2023. So like literally six months ago, it feels like it was a decade ago. And while we were all there, we were all talking. We all kind of looked at each other and we said, well, what if we made something to kind of fill that gap? Because if we didn't find very many things, let's make something then. And so we started recording as soon as we got back from that conference in March. And now we're finally starting to see some of the fruits of our labor here six months later. So it's been a really rewarding time to get to see, you know, all that work that we've put into it and all the figuring things out starting to pay off. My biggest issue whenever somebody asks me what my big ticket political issue is, it, it kind of surprises them that I don't immediately say environment. I, I say pro-life issues. And for me, part of that is the environment. You can't say that you want somebody to be on this planet and then not have clean air to breathe or clean water to drink. It does no good to bring somebody here and say that you care about the value of their life if their house is just going to burn down in a crazy wildfire or if they're not going to be able to breathe. Any way that you look at it, whether it's fixing the climate to make sure that places are inhabitable, particularly for me, for low-income individuals and for blue-collar individuals who are already at the mercy of the world around them, much less the environment. For me, it's, you know, whether you're fixing the climate to make places more inhabitable or whether it's understanding that you don't need to buy five of whatever Amazon promotes to you that day, because <laughs> that not only does that exploit people who are not making livable wages in certain parts of the world, but it creates a whole lot of excess waste. I would imagine that nearly everybody who's listening to this has a whole closet full of junk that they've been putting off cleaning out for years. Whereas some people in parts of the world have nothing. So for me, if you pick up the environment around you, if you feed the birds, if you take care of the tree, if you clean up the riverway, you're expressing that you're pro-life because you're caring for life, whether that's human or animal or plant or whatever, all the way around you. And that's, that's, that's always how I talk to conservatives about it. I either talk about you know this fiscal angle or I tell them if you're pro-life, this should be at the top of your pro-life concerns because it's, it's more than just letting people be born. It's making sure that they have a good life when they're here. And part of that is being an environmentalist. That was Katie Zakreski, one of the hosts of Green Tea Party Radio. To hear more from Katie and her co-hosts and to listen to the weekly show, visit greenteapartyradio.com. That's greenteapartyradio.com. 
You will also find Green Tea Party Radio wherever you get podcasts. I had the pleasure of speaking with Zara Amr, the founder of the Climate Change Project. This is a first-of-its-kind indie publication designed for a digitally educated, climate-anxious world. Zara is also the creator of The Change, Woman, Technology, and the Anthropocene. It is one of the only shows featuring women working in climate tech. Prior to speaking with Zara, I listened to an episode that featured Deborah Roberts. Deborah is from the South African city of Durban. She is the head of the Sustainable and Resilient City Initiatives Unit. Deborah is well-respected in the climate community. She appeared in the 2019 list of the world's 100 most influential people in climate policy. In the episode, Deborah explains that important implementation is often sidelined in favor of innovation. I found this fascinating. She emphasizes how people tend to favor bright and shiny things. This often leads to essential matters being overlooked. Deborah also speaks about how society's focus on technology ignores the real challenges. More specifically, many of us have a blind trust in technology, but not in science. Why is that? Deborah speaks on how society's blind trust in technology stems from the fact that technology often improves our day-to-day lives. On the other hand, science and what is suggested by scientists to combat climate change often means changing our lifestyles. This episode is just one example of how the Change podcast highlights women pioneering in the global climate tech ecosystem. For my first ever interview with a guest, I reached out to speak with Zara Amar, the producer of The Change. Turns out she has never been interviewed for a podcast before. In this excerpt of our conversation, Zara shares insights into her endeavors and the motivations that led her to launch this podcast. She also reveals the reasons why she believes creating a platform for these conversations is significant. University was really, really hard for me. I'm an autodidact and a self-learner. I need to be able to sort of look into other sources in order to sort of accumulate information, especially when post-pandemic, the world is such a different place. The future is looking especially uncertain, and I really wanted the podcast for to be sort of an opportunity for people like yourself, for young people or people who are looking to make a change in their life to understand what they can do to sort of get involved in the climate space, be that professionally or on a social level. What the podcast does is it, it has these five key things going for it. And one of them is that the women who are being interviewed, they're very dignified behind the scenes personalities. There are these sort of intellectual blood banks, their areas of specialism, but we're not the kinds of people who take up all the oxygen in the room. We're the kinds of people who sort of sync up with other people and get things done quietly without making a fuss. The second is it's an opportunity and it was an opportunity for me to really highlight and map the expansive climate tech ecosystem. The kind of people who we interview, their job titles, positions that they have, they're not the sorts of people who are on the publicity circuit. There are economists, engineers, and civil servants who are doing extraordinary work. So that was really exciting. Having exposure to all of that and learning um, about what all these different women do, that was pretty cool. Third thing for me was that the women who are interviewing, they're either in sort of entirely new positions, entirely new roles, or they've created their roles. And in each of the interviews, they provide a slow math breakdown of how they do what they do and why. 
for people who are interested in getting involved in the climate space, we're essentially building a roadmap. You kind of understand where you could make a difference, what sort of career to pursue and, and how. That was Zara Amr, the producer of The Change Podcast. You can listen to season one wherever you get podcasts. Season two will premiere in early 2024. Zara is currently working on multiple projects that might interest you. These include the Net Zero Super Club, which will take place in person in three European cities. She also provides engaging original reports on topics from insurance and extreme heat to floating cities. Visit theclimatechangeproject.today. That's theclimatechangeproject.today. Now, back to Peterson. Thank you, Lily. I've listened to both of these podcasts. I agree. They provide fresh insights and thought-provoking conversations. I want to mention three more podcasts. Along the lines of Green Tea Party Radio, there is another conservative climate change podcast that's been around for a couple of years. It is The Eco Right Speaks, a project of Republic Ian. This group was founded by Bob Inglis, former U.S. representative from South Carolina. He appears on our own show in episode 57, The Tide is Rising. Here is a promo from Eco Right Speaks. Conservative and concerned about climate change? You're not alone. My name is Chelsea Henderson, and I host RepublicEN.org's Eco Right Speaks, bringing you weekly guest interviews and stories. John Kasich, Christine Todd Whitman, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an eco-right leader bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen, subscribe, and join us each week on the Eco-Right Speaks. I'm another podcast that's doing something different in regards to climate change. Climate Changed speaks directly to faith leaders and community leaders. It's sponsored by the BTS Center in Portland, Maine. It is hosted by Nicole Deeroff and Ben Yashua Davis. Their goal is to develop spiritual leadership for a climate-changed world. Full disclosure, I help with producing this podcast, so I am totally biased. Unlike many climate-themed podcasts, this one provides a space for personal reflection near the start of the show. Then one of the hosts interviews a guest. This is usually a thought leader who instructs, inspires, and provokes the listener to embrace climate change work as a spiritual mission. Then the two co-hosts discuss the conversation. They end each episode with meaningful, tangible, and attainable next steps. Here's an extended promo from Season 2, which just started last month. Hi, I'm Ben Yashua Davis, co-host of the Climate Change Podcast. I am incredibly excited about Season 2 of our show. In this season, we ask big questions about collective honesty and complicated hope, which feels really timely in a moment dominated by news of floods, wildfire smoke, and record-breaking heat. I talk with Dr. Suzanne Mosier about what it means to lead well in an era defined by accelerating, traumatic, and transformational change. When people are really, really threatened in their identity, they are pushed to change. And who of us wants to? <laughs> Thank you very much. It was just fine before, or, you know, it's, it's too hard and I don't know how. So helping people frame that process and frame the dark night of the soul. I mean, that's your territory, right? 
Indigenous writer and teacher Ray Buckley shares what it means to practice forgiveness and joy in the face of almost unthinkable communal and personal tragedy. And there was at that moment an understanding didn't come through reading a book or anything of that nature, that in this case, one who had caused a significant tragedy to me and my family, that there was a way past this for both of us. And you will hear the amazing conversation I had with iconic author and organizational thinker Margaret Wheatley. She shares about what it means to do hope-filled, meaningful work, even in the face of genuinely insurmountable challenges. It shifts from what do I think I need to feel fulfilled and purpose-filled life to what does the world need from me? And it's not the big world. It's the world of your community, your congregation, your school, your family, your team. And I call those islands of sanity now because we're doing our very best to create sanity, to create the conditions for people to be free of fear and express, therefore, our best human qualities of generosity, kindness, creativity, and community. Do you want to be challenged and inspired? Join us for this amazing series of conversations. You can listen to Climate Change wherever you get your podcasts or visit the btscenter.org. Finally, I want to tell you about a podcast produced by a high school student who is an active CCL volunteer. Veda Ganesan is the producer and host of Sustainable Sense, sense as in dollars and cents. Veda dives into all things money, economy, investing, climate, and environment, one episode at a time. Welcome to Sustainable Sense. My name is Veda Ganesan, and in this podcast, we'll be talking about the big three, money, markets, and the environment. What is sustainable investing? How can big steps by the government make a big impact in solving the climate crisis? What can we as individuals do on our part to mitigate climate change while still being financially responsible? If you have any of these questions, you're in luck. All of these questions will be answered on our show, so stay tuned for monthly episodes featuring lively discussions, heated debates, and thoughtful inquiry on topics such as carbon pricing, renewable energy investments, and sustainable initiatives. This podcast is perfect for all ages with a thirst for knowledge or just a curiosity for what financial steps can be taken to alleviate climate change. Climate change is a hot topic in society today, and through this podcast, we'll be exploring the behind the scenes of our hot problems through a financial lens. In our ever-evolving world, we hope to inspire individuals to take action against a problem that we started with a solution that we can create together. If you have any specific topics you would like us to discuss, please email us at sustainablesensepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's sustainablesensepodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at sustainablesensepodcast. Make sure to follow Sustainable Sense to get notifications and stay updated. 
And as always, invest your sense in climate defense. You will find Sustainable Sense, Climate Changed, Eco Rights Speaks, Green Tea Party Radio, and The Change wherever you get podcasts. I have links in our show notes to each of these shows. Just visit cclusa.org slash radio. That's cclusa.org slash radio. When it comes to climate change, there is no such thing as hearing too much good news. This next good news story today comes from Lila Powell. Hi everyone, I'm Lila Powell and I'm back with a good news story. This month's story is extra special to me because I was a part of the team that helped pull this off. Clean the Bay Day has been a Virginia tradition since its inception in 1989. It has become Virginia's largest and longest running annual litter cleanup. On the first Saturday of June, thousands of Virginians come together to clean up and keep the Chesapeake Bay watershed clean. And it's all done within just three hours. Clean the Bay Day is hosted by the Chesapeake Bay Foundation in partnership with over 60 different localities. This includes cities, state parks, and even businesses. During this year's Clean the Bay Day, over 4,000 volunteers removed over 114 pounds of debris. And you'd be surprised the kind of trash people find. My favorite finds were a plastic hippo and a pork tenderloin that was actually found in its original packaging. One of the volunteers even found a $20 bill. It really pays to clean the bay. Litter and plastic pollution have a huge impact on our ecosystem and society. It chokes marine life, prevents seagrass growth, and creates harmful microplastics. And it even affects crime. Something I recently learned is that litter cleanups are actually associated with a decreased crime rate. And you might be thinking, I don't live in Virginia, so why should I care? Well, the Chesapeake Bay watershed spans more than 64,000 square miles, and it covers parts of Virginia, Delaware, West Virginia, Maryland, New York, Pennsylvania, and all of DC. And while Clean the Bay Day is only in Virginia, there's an option for everyone else living within the watershed. Clean the bay your way. You and your friends can conduct your own cleanup efforts on smaller sites like your neighborhood, school, or workplace. If you're interested in being a part of next year's Clean the Bay Day, check out cbf.org clean. That's cbf.org clean. And join the over 170,000 volunteers who have removed approximately 7.3 million pounds of debris since 1989. Thank you, Lila. If you have good news you want to share on the show, email us radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. I want to end our show today with an action step. Here at Citizens Climate Radio, we understand that action is the antidote to despair. So each month, we're going to bring you meaningful, achievable, and measurable next steps for you to consider. You don't have to do them all. You may already have your climate action plate full. So these may not apply. But here are steps you can take and feel free to share them with your friends. Number one, subscribe and listen to one of the podcasts we told you about today. In addition to just listening, share what you learn with your friends. And whenever possible, rate and review the shows. This will raise the show's rating so more people find it. The more we get people listening and talking about climate change, the faster change will come. 
Number two, if you're a college student, check out the Carbon Fee and Dividend Movement. They have an excellent campaign that creatively engages college students, faculty, and staff in considering the most effective policy, hashtag Carbon Fee and Dividend. They also help you connect directly with lawmakers. CFDMovement.com. That's their website, CFDMovement.com. And follow them on Instagram at Carbon Fee and Dividend. Number three, if you're a high school student, join others like podcaster Veda Ganesan and become part of CCL's National Youth Action Team. They're currently running the Great School Electrification Challenge. Visit youth.citizensclimatelobby.org. That's youth.citizensclimatelobby.org. And follow them on Instagram at citizensclimateyouth. And finally, number four, if you're looking for more ways to act, visit our action page, cclusa.org slash action. That's cclusa.org slash action. I have put all these links in our show notes over at cclusa.org slash radio. Woo, we're at the end. Thank you so much for joining the CCR team and me for episode 89 of Citizens Climate Radio. If you like what you hear and you want to support the work we do, visit citizensclimateeducation.org. There you will learn how to make a tax-deductible contribution. We very much welcome your feedback about this episode. After you listen, feel free to fill out a short survey. You will find a link to the survey in our show notes, or just email us, radio at citizensclimate.org. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano, along with the CCR team, Karina Taley, Horace Moe, and Lily Russian. Other contributors include Lila Powell and Dr. Krista Heiser. Technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Flannery Winchester and Samantha Johnstone. Moral support from Madeline Para. The music on today's show comes from epidemicsound.com. I hope you're enjoying the music. Please share Citizens Climate Radio with your friends and colleagues. You can find Citizens Climate Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at northernspiritradio.org. Join the discussion that we have at our Facebook page, and you can follow us on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Wait, we used to say, I'm going to tweet about climate change. What are we going to say now? I'm Xing about climate change? Whatever. Find us on X at Citizen C Radio. That's Citizens, the letter C, radio, at Citizen C Radio. Call our listener voicemail line. Yeah, we have one. 619-512-9646. Plus one if calling from outside the USA. That number again, 619-512-9646. And feel free to tweet or X at me directly at P2Sun. Visit cclusa.org slash radio to see our show notes and find links to our guests and so much more. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. <laughs>